You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. She stands before you naked. You can see it. You can taste it. But she comes to you light as the breeze. You can drink or you can nurse it. It don't matter how you worship. As long as you are down on your knees. So I knelt there at the delta, at the alpha and the omega, at the cradle of the river and the seas. And like a blessing come from heaven, for something like a second, I was healed and my heart was at ease. Oh baby, I waited so long for your kiss, for something to happen, oh, something like this. You were listening to a few selected verses of Light as the Breeze by Leonard Cohen. And now we move on to this week's podcast of AI Ready Healthcare. All right, so it's a really wonderful and sunny day here in Darmstadt, and we are here again with a new episode of the second season of our podcast, AI Ready Healthcare. Within this podcast, we meet and talk with researchers and scientists, both from the clinical community as well as the Mikhai community. And today, it's really a pleasure of mine to have with me here, Professor Alejandro Frangi. Professor Frangi is currently located in UK, but he has really a diverse background of research from across continents. So we will hear more about that. But first of all, really warm welcome here to the podcast, Professor Frangi. Thanks a lot, lot, Anirvan, for inviting me. Perfect. So for the sake of simplicity, I will start calling you Alex now. So Alex, the first question, the traditional way we start is basically knowing about you. So now you are one of the big professors, a senior member within the Mikhai Society and beyond. But how was your really journey of as a young researcher to this level? So thanks a lot. So when I was at high school, I, I actually was quite keen to do biomedical engineering. That was already at that stage what I was interested in. I didn't know really the, the different types of biomedical engineering and the different directions, but it was clear I wanted to do that. And for me, that also was related at that point with electronics engineering. That's why I did a, a degree in telecommunications or electronic engineering, electrical engineering in Spain, in Barcelona. 
So I, I traveled from South America, from Argentina, where I'm originally from, to, to Spain. And I did my degree in the Polytechnic University of Barcelona. It was quite interesting as well, because in the, especially in the final years of telecommunications engineering, we used to have some elective modules, particularly about bioinstrumentation and also in signal processing. And I was quite interested in both of those areas. So I did basically my final graduation project in electrical impedance tomography, which was at that time the closest to image processing, which was the thing that was starting to form as my interest. But the group that I worked with for my final graduation project was mainly in electronics and hardware design of EIT systems. So after that project, I decided to move for my PhD abroad. It was actually quite an interesting story there because I, I, I published my first small paper when I, when I look in retrospect in EMBS in Amsterdam in, that was uh, back to 96 I think as part of my graduation project and in that trip I had the opportunity to know quite a number of people and one of those was Max Ever who was supposed to be later uh, end up being my, my PhD advisor and it was quite funny because it all started in a library in Barcelona trying to look through the transactions on various journals who were the people working in this field and sending a few emails in groups in the Netherlands just because I was going there. And Max actually invited me to, uh, so he actually picked me up in Amsterdam and, and drove me to Utrecht where he showed me the lab. And well, there was a story that I started there and ended up getting excited about working in, in that group. So I did my PhD in, in Utrecht. When I look in retrospect, that was actually quite transforming for my career because Max created that you know impressive environment which was of a lot of engineers and mathematicians and computer scientists but actually in a department of radiology in a hospital so the fact of actually seeing the technology immersed in the day-to-day -day, you know patient care to me was quite important as well and that actually left a big imprint in me i mean this is you know in the 96 to 2001 where there was in europe only a few groups that actually were really really doing medical image analysis in a full environment you know there was basically a group in utrecht there was a group in Leuven from paul sutton's uh nicolas ayash was not strictly speaking in a hospital but you know, he was quite engaged into clinical applications. And those people actually, together with, you know, people like Ron Kikinis in the US and Brigham and, and Women's and, you know, and Jim Duncan in, in Yale, were people who were really transforming the field essentially of computer vision and medical image pro and, and image processing into the, the medical image computing field. And I got quite excited about, about that. So I did my PhD there. That, that helped me a lot. I also created a lot of very close friendships and partnerships with people. I mean, Utrecht was quite a place where a lot of people came to give talks. So I got to know quite a lot of people from there. And, and it also was the melting pot of the scale space theory, you know, with people that were driving that, that agenda as well. I mean, from that group, fundamentally, most of the groups currently in the Netherlands uh, were formed, you know, in Nijmegen, in, in Eindhoven, in Rotterdam, in addition, of course, to the group in Leiden, and Arnold Smulders in, in, in Amsterdam as well. But it was really very strong and, and, and close community. And that I think also was quite quite transformative to me. So you know, one, one thing I, I pick up with this is how the, the impact of those early years in, in all of the students actually can have a massive consequence uh, career-wise for all of us. Then I had the chance to move to Spain back where I took my first academic position in, in Zaragoza, then in, in Barcelona for a few years, and then finally back in Barcelona, it was also quite an interesting experience with people like Vicente Casellas, who, who is one of the authors of the seminal paper on snakes 
and deformable models. So that had also a massive impact career-wise. So he was a fantastic academic who unfortunately passed away now. That also was quite foundational in those years. And then the opportunity to move to, to the UK in 2011. So I've been now essentially half of my career in the UK and half of my career uh, in Spain. That actually was a quite a um, step for me. And in the UK, it's a, it's a very different community in, in many senses from Spain, where there was relatively few groups to be in the UK, where there is a lot of very good groups. and uh, gives you the opportunity as well to collaborate more broadly and also to, you know, to have the need for specializing as well. And that links a bit with things that I know we want to talk about, computational medicine and why I took that, that route. But fundamentally, during those years in Barcelona, back in 2005, one of the things that also was quite important to me was the organization of the FMAH, the FIH, the Functional Imaging and Modeling of the Heart that was in 2005 in Barcelona. And that is a small conference, but it's very beautiful because it brings people from not only the imaging and the image analysis, but also from the modeling space. And at that point, I sort of made a choice as well that I didn't want to spend the rest of my career developing yet another algorithm for segmentation or registration, and that I needed to also have some sort of longer-term view about where all that was going, but at the same time retaining the excitement that I had still in the field of computational imaging. And what I realized is that no matter how much we would work in image analysis, we would fundamentally stay at the level of measuring things that are happening today in the patient organ. But what really is interesting for the clinicians is also trying to understand what is the course of disease down the line, and particularly what happens when you start doing interventions in a patient. And that requires not only information from images and from other sources that give you a picture of the status today, but also requires having ability to do predictions. And I don't mean here predictions in the sense of a predictive model that is phenomenological and essentially is a regression of some sort, but the ability to introduce mechanistic knowledge into those predictions as well. And that requires to do modeling. And what I then realized is that people who were working in the computational modeling community were primarily doing a lot of numerics. But most of the times, if you look at the papers from, you know, even about 10 years ago, backwards for sure, but particularly even five years backwards, most of those models are run in one, two cases, five cases, 10 cases, in very, very, very small numbers. And that most of the time, what we are doing is utilizing data. Those models are not fully personalized. Sometimes, you know, we're using even idealized models. So what I realized is there was a gap in connecting all the expertise from computational mechanics and biomechanics from the field of computational imaging. And that that interface in between was actually quite rich in, in both ways, both in the personalizing and feeding information from images and other sources into modeling, but also in making those modelings streamlined through the use of large-scale image analytics. And this is basically what are currently my two main areas of research. One is what we call computational phenomics, which is the idea of doing large-scale extraction of phenotype information from large databases, whether they are you know, population imaging like UK Biobank or, or patient records from hospitals that are digitized, so that's on the one side, and on the other side, in silico trials, or specific, which is F, an area that I'm working with in computational medicine, which is adding this mechanistic prediction component in addition to sort of the data analytics component of, of the computational phenomenon. So that's a bit my journey and, and also a bit the motivation for the work that I'm doing at the moment. Wonderful. So 
Thank you, first of all, for summarizing, I guess, our two decade long or even more longer journey into a so few minutes. You have done a wonderful job there. And I think that diversity, both in terms of the research experience, the living experience, and the problems that you are trying to solve at different stages of your career is amazing. So I guess one personal aid uh, is, first of all, I my first ever conference, academic conference, was also functional imaging and modeling of heart. I attended the one in New York. I forgot the year now, but that was really a wonderful conference, I, I remember. So Metaxas and uh, uh, I forgot the other person, they were organizing it together. That was really nice. But the bigger question that you mentioned right before is basically when you see the approach by the modeling community and the approach by the, let's say, image analysis community. So image analysis has become very much data-driven and more like learning-based really over the, I would say, last decade. Whereas I still remember meeting a person from the modeling community who was trying to do the PDs of flows in the heart. And then all his beautiful visualizations are basically from one person. And when I asked, does your model generalize? He's like, I don't care. So I guess these are very different sort of approach because they can also ask, does your model have any meaning what, what you are saying? And we have to say, I don't care because interpretation is still a problem. So how are you trying to really bridge these two sort of communities who don't even talk the same type of language? That's a good point. And actually, I think surprisingly over the last particularly three, five years, they have actually grown closer. I'll come back to that, but there is a lot of surprising convergences between these two communities to the point that I think our community image computing is becoming more mechanisms driven and their community is also becoming more data driven. When I'm saying more, I don't mean that they are transforming or flipping completely, but what I mean is that they are mutual influences. So to, to me, they're they are fundamentally important, both of them. And there are a number of reasons. One of the reasons I think is quite important is the realization and, and there was a paper that I read a few a few years ago from basically a computational sociologist from Zurich that made me actually um, reflect on this. And is that if you look at the complexity of computational power or the growth of computational power, uh, as we know, this follows the Moore's law and is doubling roughly every 18 months, right? As we know it. And it's an exponential growth. If you look at the storage, increase or the amount of data we are producing and therefore the encouraging the storage demand at the moment is doubling about every 12 months and there are forecasts that say that this is going to be doubling much shorter than that right days and this also follows an exponential increase and what it, this is also meaning is that there will be a moment where our ability to collect data will surpass our ability to compute it or to do computations or learning or whatever you know we want to do with it but then the, the next thing, which I think is quite important, is that the complexity of the systems we are studying, and we could say complexity of the health, um, the, the organs and the diseases that we're studying, but also the complexity of the imagining deep learning systems that we're building in terms of numbers of parameters. You can model that, and this is actually a factorial increase as a function of time. So the net effect of all this compounding is we will be in a situation where we will have 
considerable more data that we will be able to compute and it's still considerably less that we will need to actually to inform our models and our, our systems that we're building, which is quite a, a bleak future, if you think, in terms of most of the things we're doing nowadays. And the belief that I have and a number of other people have is that the only way to, to overcome this problem is by incorporating prior information in the interpretation we are doing, whether it is through learning-based techniques by creating model-based techniques, which in computational imaging is nothing new, but even in the context of deep learning is becoming more and more relevant. You could consider, you know, attention mechanisms as a way to incorporate models, or, you know, the fact that you do it in multi-level is another way to incorporate knowledge or multiple ways that we have to do this. But also in terms of more mechanistic approaches or mechanistic models is to incorporate models on the physiology, on the physics, on all the things, you know, we know. Like, for instance, there is no point in trying to use deep learning, I think, to learn how to go from geometry to flow if your purpose is to understand flow because you know that there is a clear set of equations that governs that, right? You might want to do it for computational reasons, but that's another story, right? So these two elements are being brought together. And one of the things that, that I, I see with excitement, and this is what I'm saying, they are starting to converge, is that you see now lots of biomechanical inspiration in a lot of the image computing techniques, and this actually has been already for quite a while, think about registration techniques, you know, fluid-based registrations or registration techniques that incorporate constraints about, you know, elasticity theory, but also the other way around. Now there are techniques, for instance, physics-informed neural networks, which actually are incorporating physics in the loss functions and actually in the way we learned the priors. And this is something that, um, you know, this convergence and the importance of putting priors is something that Andreas Meyer has beautifully as well sort of pinned down through his you know, recent paper last year in, in Nature Machine Intelligence, where he essentially demonstrated that by incorporating priors, effectively you're reducing the, the estimation error bounds, which when you think about it is quite common sense. But the interesting thing is he demonstrated that and, and, and sort of pro, you know, derivated it in, in a formal way. So these two things are coming together. And I think we need to have much more interactions. I think one of the risks from our community, from the computational imaging community, which if you think is a bit what happened 20 years ago when I was describing in my early career stages where we were coming out from the computer vision and the image processing community, is that medical imaging was seen just another type of images. And we know that it's a bit more complicated than that. But likewise, now we might start to realize that what we want to do is actually not really image processing, even of medical images, even with all, is actually try to help to take better decisions for clinicians and to actually do help to provide better decision making, essentially, for the benefit of patients and, and to support clinicians. And that from a clinician's point of view and from a patient's point of view, images is just one piece of the puzzle of the reality. And that everything else that we can incorporate by way of source, priors, but also other information, which is not necessarily imaging, and you see all the, the growth in imaging genetics and linking images with text records, that is, I think, what's going to be part of the future within the computational imaging community is, I would say, two directions. One is to realize that imaging is not the center of the world, that it is integration of knowledge, across modalities, across organ systems, even in imaging, but then with other information. And second, that data is not enough because we need to do this reduction of dimensionality and managing of the complexity of the data that may require to use all kinds of priors that we have at hand. Wonderful. 
So I guess the other question I had, you briefly mentioned that in computational medicine, which is a rather big field, you are particularly interested in in silico trials. Now, trials is something I'm kind of obsessed about and I read, I try to understand what's going on because this is so many aspects, the social aspects, the human aspects, the technology, everything is involved and pharma, of course, if it's a drug trial. But I guess this is not a language which the Mikhai people are associated with. So if you are really trying to get themselves understanding the fundamentals of trial and the fundamental problems of today's trials, can you give them a really, I don't know, crash course of trials? Yeah, so let me first say that personally, I'm particularly interested in silico trials of medical devices, and that's where I'm working and what I'm doing myself. But some of the work that is going on in silico trials applies to other sort of technologies like drugs as well. And I think, although we might not be thinking about this way in, in the Mikai community, I think the challenges we do are fundamentally a very first version of what could be trials for AI tools for software. So software, as, as you know, is, is a medical device as well. So most of the work we do is primarily on implants uh, as a medical device, a really hardware type of medical devices. But there is also a way to think about in silico trials as evaluating AI tools and therefore as a software, as a device. So I'm, I'm not going to try to go into all of these different directions in, in what I'm going to take forward, but I just want to know that this is quite important and that although I will draw examples primarily from the medical device, there is this wider perspective one can take. So if I think in terms of key things in, in, in medical devices, particularly implants, and also why I started with those, I think there are two reasons why I'm working in silico trials of computational medicine for medical devices. One is, is, is a bit, it was a natural extension of what I've been doing. So for a, my first work into computational medicine was more around interventional planning. So using numerical simulation to do a scenario planning for different types of therapies and developing all the tools to be able to do those things. And, and that always relates, or most of the times related in, in our case to, to medical devices. And, and one of the areas where we did a lot of work as will come later, it was in devices for endovascular embolization of, of aneurysms and, and flow diversion of brain aneurysms. And another area was basically in cardiac resynchronization therapy, so pacing type of techniques. And, and we've done also a bit of work as well in some orthopedic implants as well. So one needs to understand what is the problem. Well, first, what is a, a trial? And then, and then what are the problems with the conventional ways to do trials? So basically, clinical trials are mechanisms, are one aspect, one way of generating evidence for in support of the approval of the regulatory approval and therefore the ability to commercialize a medical device. And this is something which is crucial for the regulators because they try to have the patient's safety in mind, but also, you know, the benefit of the patients in mind and, and regulate so that technologies is, are, are good, you know, are, are helpful and healthy and supportive of patients. So fundamentally, a trial is one way to produce evidence for the approval, for the regulatory approval of the device. So there are other forms of evidence that I think is worth mentioning. One of them is essentially in vitro or bench experiments. So for instance, if you think about a stent, so putting on a bench that does flexion tests to see you know, the durability of a stent. There's also animal experiments that usually are the next stage. And then there is human trials at different levels I'm not going to go in detail into that, but there is a whole range of trials at different levels, whether they're early phase trials, which are mainly smaller numbers, but trying to assess 
safety in humans and, and some level of efficacy all the way up to the final trials where you test devices at really large scale, including, you know, post-market trials, which is once you already have put the device in the market, but you need to do surveillance that your device, you know, says what it says in the team, right? This is important because as we will see, there is a limit to what you can test before you go to the market. And there is always going to be situations and scenarios you never anticipated or you, you, know, you didn't plan. So one needs to do these surveillance trials to make sure that you keep an eye on what's going on. Now, the other aspect is that in terms of the type of evidence that we need to generate, so this is the ways that we generate evidence, the type of evidence are in two areas, fundamentally safety and efficacy. The safety aspect is, is this device safe? Can I put it in patients knowing that the likelihood of having an adverse effect is counterbalanced by the benefits essentially that the device can provide? And then you have basically efficacy, which is, is this device doing something useful? It can be safe, but not making any difference in the patient or not making a larger difference than the alternative treatment that is already in place. So these are things which are quite important. There is other aspects as well of trials, particularly at later stages, like looking at usability, at how this is framed into the workflow. Uh, you know, it might be a technology which is very safe and it has a patient benefit, but complicates the workflow in the clinics to a point that it becomes not cost-effective. And that may be another consideration. This is something that, although it is considered right from the beginning, you know, in a sense, it's a secondary aspect. So most of the times, bench tests and animal tests and the very early phases of clinical trials are mostly around safety and for instance if there are drugs about dosage as well so how you actually use because sometimes you know a device or a drug has multiple ways to be applied so you might need to optimize that and then in human trials is when you're actually looking at efficacy primarily so when you know you're safe so you're not going to harm but the question is does it make a difference or not now the problem is that in the way we do conventional trials nowadays, and there is a huge amount of science and statistics and biostatistics around them, and maybe my epidemiologist and biostatisticians colleagues will disagree with me, but it's the science of glorified trial and error, right? So fundamentally, the way we do trials is different ways to test devices and see what happens, right? With all kinds of designs to minimize doing more tests than needed, of course, with a pipeline of multiple layers of trials to not put people at harm unnecessarily, but anyway, is glorified trial and error. And one of the fundamental problems, well, there are many problems with this approach that sometimes we tend to overlook because we think that this is the de facto approach to, to test right technologies. But just to give a few of them, one of them is the length of these trials. So if you want to look at five years impact of a particular device, as a minimum, you need to wait five years after every subject. So that means that devices that have trials that are really long-term are not very many. And, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we used to put devices which were perhaps not as effective as nowadays. And we used to have not as many prescriptions as, as we have today. So what happened then was that you know, you were putting a new coronary stent and you were happy if you gave the person that otherwise would have died another five years of life. But now we have a much more stressed society. So you get people with problems much younger, devices which are much more, you know, effective that last for longer. And you may have one of those devices for 20, 30 years. And actually nobody really knows the efficacy of some of those devices. And I'm talking about here cardiovascular devices, which are very prevalent, let alone, you know, orphan diseases and, and more rare conditions 
where this is even more more challenging. So that's that's one problem. Another problem is that every trial is designed and powered for one question. And this is, you know, the question or, or the point about primary outcomes and secondary outcomes is primary out- outcomes are usually the outcomes are the success criteria, let's say, for which you have power in your study. And normally it's all about, I want to see a difference in the effect. And I know that the alternative, for instance, flow, diverter reduces flow on average by 40%. And I think that this will do it by 30% because that's what I want. So there is a difference of 10%. So I power my my design to actually pick up that difference. And of course, the smaller that difference is, and the difference becomes more and more smaller as we do better technology, the larger your trial needs to be, right? But after I did all the powering, then if I want to ask other questions, because during the trial, I realized that there is other interesting things that I might be thinking about, or even at the beginning of the trial, I need to either have a priori secondary outcomes, which are things for which I may not be fully powered, but is more exploratory. So that might be to feed future trials or things that happen, you know, ideas that emerge during the trial where you might want to use them to do adaptive trials or to actually, uh, or because it becomes obvious with, with additional evidence in the literature, that's the, the new real question. And the problem is that you might be not powered at all for those things and you might need to start all over. So imagine devices which might need to last for several years where, you know, the trial, you might want to have multiple questions. How you do that? I mean, well, the fact is that devices now take easily between seven to 11 years to go to the market from the conception, drugs is even larger. You know, just to give an idea, the medical technologies market is about a quarter of the automotive industry market. So it's, it's not small, it's a massive one. The automotive market is growing at 5%, you know, compound annual growth rate, while, you know, the drugs and the medical devices and drugs is about 5.2 to 6% growth rate. So it's larger in the growth. However, we are designing devices and other things in this trial and error manner. When in other domains, automotive industry, for instance, we've been starting to use modeling and simulation for a long time. You know, people don't tend to do now too often real car prototypes until late in the design. You do a lot of 3D printing and virtual prototyping. You don't do wind tunnels as you used to do in the past. You do simulations with numerics. And nowadays we also have AI coming into autonomous driving, right? So while this is happening and if you look at a car 30 years ago and a car now, like the Tesla, is, is a huge change, not only in the quality of the car, but the process we used to build them, while in the context of medical devices, fundamentally we haven't changed. And not surprisingly, if you look at the technologies for endovascular aneurysm repair, for instance, 20 years ago, 30 years ago with the Guglielmi coils, and now with flow diverters, essentially it's a bunch of wires. And we should be able to do much better than that. We still have, you know, nearly 20% complication rate, nearly, you know, 3% death rate. So the whole idea of in silico trials is use computational medicine informed through data like imaging, but also other sources to be able to do those testings in a computational way and help us to see if we can, what we call the three R's, reduce, replace and refine the need for trials. We, we still will need conventional trials, but the idea is that in some cases we might not have the option to do those trials, either because it would, they would be unethical or because they're commercially unfeasible. So most of the trials, another problem, are done in Europe and in the US. What about those devices then being used in least economically developed countries where they also need them? So who has tested them in populations in South America, for instance, or in Africa or in some parts of Asia? So 
is being able to to do that and then either do domain adaptation we could call right adapting them to a new domain or being to you know in that sense we could replace those other trials refine them uh, because if you can through simulations estimate the magnitude of the effect you can measure you can do better powering of those designs as well and reducing them because if you know that from a portfolio of 10 devices there are five of them that you can through numerical simulations realize they will never make it for fundamental design flaws those are five trials that you save and all the costing associated with those so this is the impact and from our make a community i think there is so many opportunities in large-scale image analysis to create virtual populations in creating what we call virtual chimeras, so ways to integrate data in generative models that are multimodal, how to then be able to incorporate physics in the analytics we do, but also streamline completely the pipeline. So you go from the image all the way to numerical simulations without any manual intervention. That's where I think a number of the exciting areas for our community lie. Wonderful. Thank you so much for really summarizing something which is rather complicated. And I guess this is also a very nice thing for all the young Mikai listeners of the podcast that doing a slightly better dice or slightly better target registration error might not be the best way to help out the medical community. There are more fundamental questions or fundamental way of thinking about it. So in particular for my case, I was not very much aware of the in silico trial per se until I came across this paper of yours. So this is a paper that came in Nature Communications. The title of the paper is In Silico Trial of Intracranial Flow Diverters uh, Replicates and expands insights from conventional clinical trials. Alex is the last author, and we will be going a little bit deeper into the trial paper and try to understand what was really so exciting about this paper. But maybe as a start, can you tell us about the clinical need of this paper? Yes, so I think there are two aspects of the motivation for this paper. One is, let's say, the clinical need. The other one is more the need in the context of in silico trials, per se, as, 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 a, as an area. We try to do two things in this paper. One is answer a number of questions related to the device itself, but more fundamental. For instance, one of those is that it's known that aneurysms that have a side, so, so aneurysms for, for those who are perhaps less familiar is, is, an, is a broadening of the vessel, right? And, and we look into intracranial aneurysms and they like to be normally in bifurcations and in vessels within what is known the circle of Willis, which is part of our circulatory system that has a circular design because nature has made it in such a way that being the brain such a critical organ, if one of those vessels becomes blocked, there is always collateral flow to make sure that you have sufficient blood supply to the brain. So the aneurysms, which are this bulging of the vessels in various forms and shapes, like to appear in there and they like to appear close to bifurcations. And there are different ways to treat them. One is with coils, which require craniotomy. So that's a surgical approach. This is essentially clipping operations that we used to do in you know the, the very first type of treatments. And in the 90s, there was the Guglielmi detachable coils, which is the first of a row of minimal invasive approaches where essentially you go in an endovascular way through an initial orifice in the, in the femoral artery and you go all the way up through image guidance through catheters to the brain and then you put push coils inside the aneurysm which the goal of those coils is to reduce the flow 
And when you reduce the flow or you slow the flow, what it happens is it clots. And that's the way you close the aneurysms, as opposed to clipping, which is literally putting a clip on the neck, but requires opening the skull. And then these detachable coils were because you could do a you could pass a current that will detach the last part of the coil from the guide wire that you were using, so you can pull it out and, and, and just leave the coil inside. The one problem with those coils was that if the aneurysm has a neck which is broad, these coils could come out. So people started to put a stents, and the first stents were coronary stents. The interesting thing is coronary stents tends to be open cell, and you could show through simulations that those stents are actually not good because they depend on the particular position in which you release the stent. So you can show that the flow depends a lot and you can throw, show through simulations. The idea was good. I mean, was if you use coils and um, stents in the coronary, why cannot use the same device in the brain, which is a new prescription for the same device, requires a lot less regulatory approval. That's an example of repurposing a device and, and the possible complications of it. So then when those problems were seen, there was a combination of those stents uh, and coils. So you use the coil as the solution, but the stand as a scaffold to keep the coils quiet in its place. And then people say, well, what happens if we start putting coils where the strut density is higher and higher, and therefore you have less need of the coils altogether because you reduce the flow just with the mesh that you are extracting, essentially the neck flow. And that's what led to flow diverters, which effectively divert, as the name says, the flow into another direction, reducing the flow and promoting coagulations. Now, one of the things nowadays with those devices is that the flow divergence is that there is evidence that when you have a side branch in the aneurysm, and by side branch actually is not in the aneurysm, but slightly after the aneurysm, but relatively close to it, there is evidence in the literature that those patients tend to respond less well. And it's not very clear actually why exactly that happened. Okay, so I'll come back to that because that was one of the things we were trying to to understand from a clinical point of view. But from in silico trials point of view, and I think this is one of the reasons why Nature Communications pick up this paper, is that although the in silico trial idea has been lingering for at least a decade now, and it's interesting, but the FMAH conference in Barcelona was a kickoff of the virtual physiological human, which was the initiative in Europe that preceded the in silico trials ideas, right? So the problem is that there isn't sufficient evidence in the literature of the approach being equivalent to conventional trials. So we've been spending groups like Nicolas Ayashi's groups and group in Nice and ours and other, and other groups have been spending lots of time in developing methodologies for building those models, but we haven't had so far the capability to scale up these to actually implement proper in silico trials. And at the same time, those landmark publications haven't been there. And, you know, we still have to do a bit of work, not just to convince biomechanicians and image analysis people, but also to convince clinicians, manufacturers of devices, and more importantly, regulators and trial methodologies as well. So you will see that in this paper, there is two additional so this paper was led by Ali Sarami, who is one of you know, a very, very good student that we have in the group. And this is really his work of his PhD uh, leading into this landmark publication and then a couple of earlier students, but also the collaboration with lots of clinicians in the Anuris project uh, back in 2006 to 2010. And in this, in the list of co-authors, we have also, uh, we have James Byrne, who is a neurosurgeon from Oxford, and Kit Roos, who is an epidemiologist from Nijmegen. And one of the reasons to involve them was not only for the insight and their expertise, but it also because we wanted to make the point that this is credible for clinicians and for epidemiologists, and also that current trials also have all kinds of issues as well themselves. So that was kind of the secondary outcome, if you want, from, from our study. 
So what we set forth was to take the results from three conventional clinical trials from the same device. And our goal was to demonstrate that we could construct a population of virtual subjects that had the similar demographics and that the results of those virtual trials would allow us to replicate the results of each of those three studies. But also we were hoping that we would be able to go beyond what those studies could explain. So the summary of the paper basically is fundamentally three, four things. One is that we could predict the efficacy of the, uh, so we call this virtual trial FDPIs from Flow Diverter Performance Assessment. We utilize one device that is from Medtronic. And what we showed is the, the, this pipeline endovascular device or PED. We showed the efficacy that we could predict some metrics of outcome or some proxies of outcome, better said. We also showed that we could explain some device failure scenarios for those devices, and also that we could identify some biomarkers of failure. So it might be worth to explain some of the things we did. So this is, the image analysis part is only, I wouldn't say a small part because it's, it's a big piece as well, but we go from images to do geometric models. We also develop models of the fluid dynamics so the physics. We also have developed models of clot formation. So that's biochemistry. So Ali is actually a chemical engineer and he developed those numerical models of blood clotting. So we are able not only to say the flow has changed, but also we can predict the amount and type of clot. And we also have developed with other colleagues, Tony Lassila, who is another of the co-authors, we developed models, which are essentially machine learning models, but on signals, uh, models of the boundary conditions of the physiological regimes. So we can do things like for every geometry that we have, we can test it under different physiological regimes from, let's say, stress to rest. And for each of those, we can do a virtual deployment of the device. That's another model that we developed for doing virtual stenting. So this is where we did in Barcelona many years ago. And then, so we can look at plotting after putting each of the alternative device in each of the alternative geometry in each of the alternative physiological regime. So it's actually quite a high dimensional space that we, we can do. So that brings all kinds of issues about, you know, cloud computing and the need to, to distribute all of this. And I'm not going to get into that now. But fundamentally, what we did is what is called a chimera trial. So we, we didn't have the data from each of these three trials. So we couldn't replicate them and do what is called a twin trial by creating digital twins. But what we had to do is create from another database a population of aneurysms that we knew had similar demographics to the ones of the subjects in those trials. And we show in the paper that the demographics are you know, consistent. So after doing all of these tests, what we could demonstrate is that we could predict the type of clot and the fact that this clot was going to be stable. So that's the way we measure outcome. We can talk a bit about computational ways of defining outcome because that's an exciting area as well. But take... If it were for now that there is a metric of proxy of outcome, what we have shown is that our prediction of outcome is on par with the predictions for each of those three trials in the same range. So it's actually indistinguishable from those. It's within the variability of the, the three trials themselves. Each of these trials is spent between six and eight years to be done between the design and the actual publication. It took us probably the same amount of time to develop all the models, but the actual trial costed only about three months of work. And the, the advantage is as well that we can now ask any other types of questions with the same population without having the problem of powering that we discussed before. So that's one of the beauties. So it may take you eight years to do the models, but they can be utilized and reutilized while the data may not be reutilizable. So we say in the title of the paper that we also expand. So this is the, the part that I explain is the replication bit. Now, why we say we expand? Because it turns out that we demonstrated, actually, we, we could show that those aneurysms with a side branch, what happened to them 
in some cases is that you also produce clot in the side branch as well without whittling that. So you were putting the stent in the main aneurysm, but the side branch received a disturbance in the flow in such a way that the patency of those vessels was compromised. And that is actually consistent with the fact that a lot of the issues that have been reported as complications in a more anecdotal way had to do with ischemic strokes. So basically, by closing those vessels, what you're doing is producing reduced blood flow downstream of those vessels, and you end up generating an ischemic stroke as opposed to a hemorrhagic stroke, which is the one that aneurysms produce, right? So this is something that, interestingly, we also show that if you model hypertensive subjects by controlling you know, the boundary conditions as opposed to normotensive subjects. So I'm not suggesting here that you might want to extend the prescription of your device to normotensives because they are likely anyway to develop hypertension down the lines. But it shows an example of how maybe we could learn things about the way the devices perform that may help us to understand possible expansion of the prescription or anticipate risk well before we go even into patients. Therefore, you know, contribute to safety and also effectively to improve the efficacy because you then know the target group where you should be working on and not, you know, there's where you shouldn't be. Perfect. So I guess if I sort of try to summarize from a very, I guess, in the cloud kind of level and not looking much of the details. So basically because now you can replicate the numbers of a real trial by looking at the similar demographic of virtual patients, that basically can lead to, first of all, efficiency, both in terms of the amount of money that's being put into such trials, amount of time it takes, and all that comes around it, so all the logistical issues. The second thing which is really interesting is, I guess, in the machine learning way, we can call it counterfactual. So basically, what could happen is if for this particular patient, if instead of this, we can try that out. So that's the sort of second point that what you can do in a virtual trial or in a in silico trial, which you can't do in, in real trials. And the third point, I guess, is the last one that you mentioned that you can try to come up with some explanation of failure cases uh, uh, without really doing, I don't know, patient autopsy or anything like that, which is really basically harming the patient in different ways to really predict what sort of things can go wrong, to which group it's much more likely to go wrong and anticipate things. So that be a sort of summary of... Absolutely, spot on. And it's interesting you mentioned about counterfactuals because that's essentially what it is. Well, th that is what it is if we are able to create virtual populations in a sort of causal framework, right? And this is why it's exciting to see work by a number of groups, you know, Ben Glocker and others that are actually focusing on that sort of activity in medical image analysis, because I think it will be quite important to control the type of populations we build. But, you know, that also touches on another point, which is this is one of the other limitations of current trials. What you need to do group controls and randomizations because you need to be able to compensate with the fact that you cannot put three devices to the same subject. Once you implant one, you're done, right? While in a cynical way, you can. So there is no need for randomization because they are fundamentally causative trials. That's actually quite an exciting element. And, and from the point of view of, you know, where this leads us from the medical image computing community is, well, f first of all, it, it shows how you going out of your comfort zone brings you back with more energy and with new ideas, right? But at the same time, it also gives guidance to what we should be investing in the medical image 
computing community. I think one of the things that we are trying to do, but we need everybody that can be brought to this, is can we produce image analytics tools that go all the way from the image directly to numerical meshes at scale in a robust way? Can we do that? And not with data sets from a small, you know, a small home-run you know, database, not from only from UK Biobank, where all the subjects are more or less the same, well, it's the same protocol, uh, but actually with data from the National Health Services, which is, you know, our systems that have data sets which are acquired from different modalities, different image quality, different resolutions, you know, going back to 10 years technology and recent technology. Can we unleash all that digital grape, which is at the moment, this data, into a digital asset that we can build populations and think about how powerful this can be. Imagine that now all that data that is acquired and that we usually use very little of this when you think about for diagnostic purposes, we could demonstrate that we could create very, very large populations of virtual subjects where we could use the same data that was already paid by our insurances, by our NHS systems to actually make better the next generation of medical devices. And this might sound very far, but it's not. I mean, we, we have, and, you know, we're excited about UK Biobank that when it's fully completed, will be 100,000 subjects. But likewise, in Leeds, for instance, we have at the regional level something called the Yorkshire Imaging Collaborative that brings together eight NHS trusts, 20 hospitals, it's about 3 million people population with a unified PAC systems. So imagine if I'm looking for cerebrovascular, you know, rotational angiography or cerebrovascular MR, in you know three million people, even if the incidence of people who go is one percent, that's quite a large number. And if you unify, you know, data sets along across the whole of the UK or across Europe, the ability to create those populations is actually excited. And you could even think like you know the same way that there is a donation program for for organs to have a donation program for data, right? So you give your digital self for future generations of you know this sort of research as well, right? Yes, I totally agree with you. That would be really a wonderful way. And I, I also un, like totally agree that once we can come up with this first set of steps from the sensor data to something that we can manage, then creating the digital humans is probably the way to go forward. One thing I was thinking of when I was thinking of really the in silico trials, and of course we know where exactly they are good at, Maybe because I'm totally naive to the field, but what I first thought of is that what it can't do is the aspect of the actual clinical trial where, for example, a surgeon facing a rare or weird anatomical situation and the like probably the drop in skill level in performance of that surgeon due to that situation. So in a way, it's the, let's say, upper bound of what a perfect, uh, uh, let's say, procedure leads to the medical device can do, but it's probably not taking care of that part. But maybe I'm wrong in that. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a good point. I need to, to emphasize the in silico trials is not the panacea that will replace fully conventional trials. And although... I think there are possibilities to do some of the things you're suggesting. 
Um, I do recognize that, um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, the, the usability aspects, the integration and workflow aspects that had to do with experience of doctors, you will be able to do some of that in silico, but never is the same. So for instance, perhaps the Mickey Mouse version of what you were suggesting as a grand ambition could be, you know, there is a lot of work in, in colleagues from your community, more in Kai, to do workflow modeling. So work by Pierre Janine and Nasir Nawab and people in Leipzig, there's been a bunch of groups working in, in that space. That, for instance, we could create the same way that we can create physiological regimes for the organs, we could create interventional regimes. Like, for instance, how much accuracy there is in my ability to place the aneurysm, sorry, the, the flow diverter in place within the aneurysm. There is a certain maneuverability that you have for a given type of catheter. So if we could, those models, build them by sort of censoring real interventions and, and measuring, you know, pulling forces, pushing forces, torsion, which we do, we do in haptics. What we could utilize is those models for then driving uncertainty, you know, quantification, both on the eye component, but also on the numerical simulation. And these are, as you know, hot topics in both areas, actually. So what we might be able to do is not so much to model it in a deterministic way, but to model the envelope of variability that we can expect. And as a consequence, to say, well, is this likely to be a problem or it's not? The example that I show, I alluded before about putting open coronary stents in the aneurysms, what we showed is that just the error in a few degrees on the torsion when the releasing the stent will generate through the, when seen through the neck of the aneurysm, such a difference in the profile of the stent you saw. You could have the middle of an open strut or the middle of a closed strut there that actually the hemodynamics was considerably changed. And that was a recipe, you know, for disaster because you could imagine that depending on the location, you know, that would be potentially problematic. Another example that I think relates to your point is perhaps we should start thinking about modeling for resilience, sorry, designing for resilience as opposed to designing for personalization only. So one of the problems of doing things so customized is that when you are outside the customization regime, you, you might be actually worse than with a non-customized device. If you actually can understand the things that will have the biggest impact on outcome, you could come up with ideas of designs that have the least influence from those problems. Let me give you an example. One of the things we did in COILS, so we, we developed with other students in the type in, in Barcelona, Hernan Morales, we developed um, a system that, that allows to do, you could model the deployment of COILS. Now, your question could be, you know, what are you going to model if the calls depends on the order in which you put, who puts them? It's a very stochastic process of, of putting devices, right? Well, this is a good example. It's an area where you don't control the human part. So what we showed in a couple of publications, there was evidence in the literature that aneurysms, which had a low packing rate, and the packing rate is the amount of metal, the, the volume of coil you put over the volume of, an, of the aneurysm. So a typical packing rate goes between 25% and, and 30%, it tends to be high. So it's very difficult to pack coils in an aneurysm higher than that. So what the literature was saying in a paper from about 10 years before the study we did on humans is that subjects that had a packing rate that was, let's say, on the order of 15 to 20%, tend to reopen, while aneurysms that were more in the 24 to 25, 27%, they didn't. They tend to be better outcome. So what we show through simulations is that you can demonstrate that when you go beyond 25% of packing rate, it doesn't matter the way you have put the coils anymore, pretty much. But the interesting thing is that that publication also showed that when the aneurysms were smaller or larger or medium size, 
these percentages shifted a bit. So they were not the same for all the sizes. And we actually showed that you can calculate the optimal packing rate beyond which it doesn't matter to put more coils computationally. So what we showed is that we could do a number of things with that. You could know exactly the amount of coils you had to put. It means no more expense than needed. Every coil is about a thousand pounds. So that gives you an order of money. You put between six and 20. So two or three coils less is quite a lot of money that you can save. If you put more than you need, you don't make any difference, but the likelihood that you can burst the aneurysm is higher because you're overpressurizing them. But if you put less than you need, then the problem is that these coils tend to be recompacted back towards the end of the aneurysm. And then you create like what looks like another aneurysm, which is the part that reopens from the original, the original aneurysm. So these are examples of things where, again, another example of the use of numerical simulation for testing devices, but also how we might be able to design devices in ways uh, well, the device plus the, the, the planning strategy in the ways that you get better optimum with less expense and with less, less complications. And let's not forget that any device, you know, most devices easily, you know, are several millions to put on the market. So, you know, figuring one of these things late is already very, very expensive. So, you know, bringing the cost forwards through the modeling, in a sense, helps to reduce the cost back, you know, in the back end of the, of the studies as well. Perfect. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, especially the fact that just thinking about performance in a personalized way is probably not something that we should be only worrying about, but the resilience, the uncertainty, all these things can be modeled. So I guess since we are coming almost to the end and the time is almost up, so the last question really is that there are so many open problems to deal with and when I look at the Mikai community, there is so little work that's being pushed in this direction. So what's your suggestions? What can be done? What sort of interesting problems Mikai young scientists can take over? That's a, that's a very good point, Anirvan. One of the things that I would suggest, and, and, and that's something I try to do and maybe is helpful for others, is particularly after your PhD uh, and when you can choose where to do a postdoc, Try to think laterally. Don't try to do more of the same if you can. The second thing is, particularly when you start your career as an academic, when you know when you're in the early phases of establishing yourself, there are different strategies you can follow. But I think it's important to think that the world is going to be very different by the time you are 10, 15 years down in your career and that the exciting things in science are happening at the interface of disciplines as much as at the core of each of the disciplines. So it depends on your personal style, what sort of, you know, things excite you. But for me, the interdisciplinarity was an important point by engineering in the first place, but also, you know, in, in my choices. So with that sort of perspective, things where I see that there is opportunities in for the Mikai community, and, and I will focus perhaps primarily in things which you could regard somehow core Mikai, but with a flavor into computational medicine. I would say large-scale image analytics is important, but the output is not just segmentation, is mesh generation, is creating or utilizing other aspects in the input than just the images themselves. When you are in a hospital, you don't have just the image. You have the whole you know, history of that patient. And I don't think we actually are currently interpreting the images with that additional information, which I think is, a, is limiting our ability to do more powerful things. We're using the same model, whether it is a, a male or a female, whether it is an obese or a slim person. I mean, that doesn't make sense. 
The other thing which is important is for computational medicine, you need more than the geometry. So you need boundary conditions. Sometimes they come from images. Sometimes they can come from physiological monitoring and sensing signals. But you also need tissue properties. You know, you need to have mechanical properties, rheological properties, because the personalization of those models or for interventional planning, but also when you want to create a virtual population, you need to be able to do a synthesis of those. So the geometry is the old stuff to me. I think we need to move on from the geometry and, and go beyond. But at the same time, it is still very important to have fundamental research in representation learning because it's not just about learning the representation of an image. It's learning a representation of an image when you have information about the metadata that may have information about sensing. Learning representations where you have data that is incomplete and unreliable. Learning representations where you don't have annotations. We need to move on from supervised learning. You know, the world is not supervised, right? So we need to move on in a way that embraces the reality. And I would say, take, don't try to adapt the problems to what you know. Try to adapt what you know to the problems and take you know, the bull by the horse, take those challenges and don't chicken out, really try to actually deal with those. The other thing that, that I think is, is important is the, the linkage with the computational mechanics community. I think they need us as well, because we do know more about geometry and representation of the geometries than some people in those communities. We know, we know a lot more than us in terms of mechanistic models. So interdisciplinarity is quite important. And also you know, have, have a dream of yourself. You know, when I think about the first Mikai in 98, certain things we did them look very exciting and now nobody notices them. And vice versa, certain problems that now, you know, exist probably will mean nothing in 20 years from now. That doesn't mean we don't need to do them, but what it means is that we need to think hard so that we don't generate. Nowadays, it's so easy yeah, to, to generate code. Everybody can do deep learning. When we started our career, I remember we had to actually write our IO routines, you know, to, to read images. Now everybody starts and has, let alone BGK and ITK, they have, you know, TensorFlow and Ocara. So everybody can do things without really challenging the thinking and, and trying to go beyond the state of the art. So learn a lot from the people that are around you to ask yourself the right questions. And, you know, you need to be sensible. Sometimes we need to do certain things to progress in the career. We can't just be all the time, you know, in the super risky space, but try to combine things so that you are, you develop skills in, in areas where you are, you are, your comfort zone, but also try to work interdisciplinary and stretch beyond your comfort zone. I think that would be probably the summary of the, you know, the main thing. And, and the rest I mentioned uh, elements. I think uncertainty will be another big thing, propagating uncertainty from the image analysis to the, Numerical simulations will be crucial as well. We talked about a bit about causal inference and, and causal deep learning. I think that's also really, really important. So these are a few of the many open, open things, and I'm sure you guys will figure out a lot of other things that you know we are becoming all to, to deal with. Thank you so much for this wonderful summary of where the next generation of Mikai researchers should focus and probably can benefit. I mean, I personally learned so much from this wonderful time that I chatted with you. So thank you so much, Alex, for your time. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot from you as well. Thanks a lot, Anirvan.